I want you to think with me for a moment the first time that it occurred to you that the world was big and your life was small. It may have been when a good friend or family member passed away and you realized for the first time the brevity of life. It could have been like it was for my daughter when she was a teenager and we were sitting in our driveway in our green Dodge van and we were having a little parent-child conflict. Everybody familiar with that? Everybody know what that is, right? We're having a little bit of parent-child conflict and I finally turned around and I said to her a phrase that maybe you've said to your kids or maybe you heard it growing up and this was the phrase. The world does not revolve around exactly. See, you know it. You've heard it. You've said it, right? Or maybe it occurred to you, maybe in an airplane as you're flying over, like our African friend who lives in a village with no running water, no electricity. He walks everywhere that he goes, but he gets on an airplane and he flies over to America And he's sitting in our dining room and he begins to tell us in the African way that he can. And he says this to us about his journey on the airplane. The world is too big. And I have to do it with an African accent because it makes it legit. Okay. And so he begins to unfold and describe to us how he has seen with his eyes things his eyes have never seen how he would look down the plane and he would see the mountains and tall buildings and water that went on everywhere. He said it looked like they were toys to him. How he would look down and he would see the cars moving on the pavement. And from where he was, 30,000 feet above, it looked like they were just ants, you know, moving, crawling along in a little neat, orderly fashion. It occurred to him that the world was bigger than his little world. All week this week, Your kids have been learning Bible stories on a level that they can understand it. But not only have they been learning the Bible stories, we've been helping them to connect it together so that they've not just learned a story here and a story over there and another story over here, but that they're learning these stories and they're beginning to see that the whole narrative of Scripture is one big God love story. And that's what they have been learning. And so Mike thought it would be appropriate today that we did the same thing in here, that we take things that we have learned, we take things that we know, and we begin to connect the dots. And so what we're going to do is really, we're going to take off like you're in a plane. And we're going to zoom through scripture from Genesis at the beginning until Revelation at the end in like 30 minutes flat. Okay, I don't know the oxygen mask will fall for the ceiling, but you will want to fasten your seatbelt because we will take off and go. I hope that today, that even those of you who are in this room, who you know more knowledge of scripture than I possibly know, and you could tell everything that I'm about to say, that I hope today that even in that, even in the minutia of your life and the chaos and the craziness, that this is a time of refreshing for you and your heart. I hope that those of you who maybe were like me, who you grew up in church and you memorized scripture and you knew Bible stories, but it wasn't until about my 30s that I began to go, ah, this all fits together in one neat package, in one story. Or maybe you're in here today and you're kind of new to this whole Bible, God, church thing. You may even bring your Bible to church because when Mike says, open up your Bible to give Matthew, you're thinking, I don't even know where that's at that I hope today is the beginning of seeing that this big story is more 
than our little life stories. And yet our little life stories fit into this grand scheme of scripture, this grand narrative of God's word. And so we're going to start at the very beginning when it says three words in Genesis, in the beginning was God and God created everything that we see. And we make it really simple when we're teaching it to children, right? We say, well, he created the light, he created the darkness and he hung the the stars in the sky and he put the sun in its place. And we know that everything that God created is simple and it's good, but he created also the complexities of everything. We know that when he put the waters on the face of the earth at 96.5% of the earth is covered with water and he ordered the systems just by speaking it with his words and he creates evaporation, and condensation, and precipitation, and he puts vegetation on the land, and photosynthesis that takes place, and he creates animals, and reproduction, and metamorphosis. And I'm saying all these words that you learned like in the 10th grade biology class, right? And you remember it then, but now that your 10th grader comes home and they're going, okay, mom, I don't understand that. You're going, yeah, I don't either. And God created everything. He gave order to the universe. He looked down and he said, this is good. And God created angels that would worship and serve him. But there was one angel who said that he was the most beautiful of all the angels. And he did not want to serve God. He wanted to be God. And so God cast him out of heaven. And you now know him as Satan. Well, God also creates an expression of his image, Adam and Eve, male and female, and he creates them to have a love relationship with them. They knew intimacy with God in a way that you and I have never known a perfect intimacy with God. And God walked with them. He provided for them. He put them in this garden and he gave them everything that they could possibly need. And he even gave them the ability to choose, to have a will. And he said, now you can have anything in this garden, But from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you should not eat that fruit. One day, Satan disguises himself as a serpent, the craftiest of all the beings, and comes to Eve and says, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from the tree or you would die? And he said, no. He said that we shouldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or even touch it or we would die. And Satan says this to Eve, God knows this that if you eat that fruit, that you would be like God. And so Eve takes the fruit and she eats it and she gives it to her husband, Adam, and he eats it. And in the scripture, it says that they now knew that they were naked and a crisis occurs. Sin enters in. They had disobeyed God. They knew they were naked and for the first time experienced vulnerability, shame, guilt, fear, And they hide from God. So that when God comes to them, it says that he's walking in the garden. And I love this question that he asked them as they're hiding. Where are you? Just like I picture it like this. Like when my kids were younger and they're hiding, like maybe two years old, three years old. And they're hiding behind the curtain in the living room. And in my adult way, I'm walking around the living room like I can't find them going, where are you? Right? We know that God and all his power and all his omnipresence and all knowing God knows exactly where they are. But I think God asks questions to us because we need to answer them. Where are you? And Adam says, we are hiding. 
because we were afraid and we were naked. And God says, did you eat from the fruit of the tree? And Adam says, she made me do it. And Eve said, Satan made me do it. And disobedience enters in. And sin enters in to relationship, a perfect intimate relationship that God had created. The crown of his creation had sin against him. And sin enters in. Isaiah says that we are created for God's glory. In Romans, it tells us that we sin and we fell short of God's glory. And yet, God still loves his creation. And from that time, he began a plan of restoring us back to what he had originally created for his glory and for his pleasure. But when we fell into sin, we fell hard and we fell fast. The scriptures say that the entire earth, as people began to multiply, that people would sin continually. And in Genesis chapter 6, it says this, that it grieved God's heart that he had made man on the earth. And he decided to send a flood to destroy what he had created. But there was one man named Noah who found favor with God so that when God flooded the earth, he'd given him instructions for salvation, for what he had created, the animals, and for his family. And God, after the flood, established a covenant with Noah that he would never flood the earth again. Hundreds of years go by, and you can read genealogy in Genesis chapter 11 of all the generations until we get to a man named Abraham, whom God also decided to establish a covenant with. Abraham was this man. God comes to him at 75 years of age. Abraham was 75, not God. Just want to make sure you got that straight. Abraham's 75 years old, no kids, married to a woman named Sarah. And God says to Abraham, I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you. And Abraham obeys and he tells Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And yet Abraham has no children. Often God's promises seem empty to us when we can't make sense of it in our human thinking, in the way that we process information in, in our logic. And yet Abraham, through faith, obeys God. And he says to Abraham, you're going to have so many descendants that they are going to outnumber the sand. Now I had second grade boys this week in my class. And if you want to occupy second grade boys for a long time, you tell them the story of Abraham and then you give them sand in their hand and you tell them to start counting all the granules of the sand. It's brilliant. It's a great idea. But have you ever tried it? It would be impossible. And yet God makes this promise to Abraham who doesn't have any children. You're going to have children. Sarah laughs and says, this is possible. And God says, there is nothing impossible with me. And 25 years later, at the age of 100, Abraham and Sarah have a son named Isaac. And Isaac grows up. One day God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son. And remember, God's logic doesn't always equal our logic. Abraham, I want you to take your son and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham, in faith and trusting God, obeys. He takes his son and as they're on their journey, Isaac says, Dad, where is the offering? Where's the animal for the sacrifice? And Abraham says to his son, 
God will provide. And as he lays his son on the altar, there is a ram caught in the thicket that God provides as a sacrifice. Isaac, God establishes his covenant with him. And Isaac has twins, Esau, who's a little hairy and furry, and Jacob, who seems to be a little bit of a mama's boy, but he's the one that God chooses to establish his covenant with. And Jacob has 12 sons. And one of these sons is his favorite. So he makes him a coat. You know what it's called, a coat of what? A coat of many colors. His brothers can't stand him. And we see written in scripture, maybe for the first time, or at least the first time that we read it, human trafficking take place. So that his brothers create a plan to sell him into slavery. And he goes to another land. During this time, Joseph is in prison for a decade plus years, but he gains favor with Pharaoh by interpreting a dream that they're going to have seven years of really great harvest. And then they're going to have seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh gives Joseph the authority to create a plan so that they save enough food for the land, for the Egyptians. When the famine hits and there's plenty of food in Egypt, Jacob, Joseph's dad, is back over here in Canaan. There's part I left out that's really important for you to know is that before Jacob and before Joseph was sent into Egypt, Jacob wrestled with God. And during that time, God asked Jacob, Jacob, what's your name? And he tells him, and God says, I'm giving you a new name. Your new name is now going to be called Israel. So his son Joseph is in Egypt and Jacob over here with his family or what's his name? Israel is still back over here in Canaan, but they need food. And so they travel into the land of Egypt who has plenty of food. God saves Israel. And yet Joseph dies and the Pharaohs forget about Joseph and they look out at the land and they see that the Israelites have multiplied And they become afraid that the Israelites might take over the land. So they decide to oppress the Israelites and to make them their slaves. And the more that they oppress the Israelites, the more the Israelites multiply. So Pharaoh says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the firstborn son of every Israelite family and we're going to kill them. But there was one mother who took her son hit him in a basket, sends him down the river. And Pharaoh's daughter finds him, takes him into their palace. His name is Moses. And Moses grows up in an Egyptian palace. And eventually he realizes that he's not Egyptian. He is from the Israelite family. He begins to understand this. He strikes an Egyptian person, killing them. And he flees and is in the wilderness for 40 years. And God comes to him in a burning bush one day and says, Moses, I'm going to use you to free my people who are crying out to me, who are slaves in a foreign land. And Moses does what any of us would do. We back, he back talks God, right? Oh, I don't know that I can do that. I don't know that I'm qualified. I don't know that I could measure up to that kind of thing. And God reveals himself as Yahweh, as I am. And he says this to Moses, I am the Lord God who appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. And I established my 
covenant with them, to give to them the land of Canaan. And I've heard their groanings and I've heard their cry. And I am going to free them with an outstretched arm and by many judgments. And I will take them to be my people and I will be their God. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, hey, Moses, I don't think so. Or that's my version of it because we're having to go real fast, okay? And so God sends these plagues like the blood or the water turning into blood and and gnats and frogs. I mean, have you ever been to South Arkansas in the summer and the mosquito season down there? Multiply that, people. I mean, this is not a good thing. And then one day God tells Moses, Moses, I want you to go to the Israelite people and I want you to tell them to take a lamb to kill the lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and to spread it over the door facing of the place they live. Because I'm going to send an angel of death and anyone who does not have a blood covering over them, the firstborn child of that family will die. And so the Israelites obeyed. They kill the lamb, they take the blood and they put it over so that when the angel of death comes, the angel of death passes over because of the blood covering. And the Israelite people are saved, but many in Egypt lose their firstborn child. And lamenting and crying and mourning is taking place, including Pharaoh's own household. And he tells the Israelites to get out immediately, like go now. They had to leave in such a hurry that the Israelites didn't even have time to add yeast to their bread so that it would rise. And they leave Egypt And they are freed and God is leading them into a new place. But they are told to celebrate the Passover and to remember the blood that covered them. And to remember when they eat the bread, the unleavened bread, to remember the immediate obedience that was required by God. God's presence went with his people. He did amazing things among them, impossible things like parting the Red Sea. He would be among them in a cloud during the day and fire by night so they would know which direction to go. And they get to a land that God wants to give them as a promised land. And God has done all these amazing things. He turned water bitter that was bitter, made it sweet. He rained down manna from heaven. And yet the Israelites are grumbling and complaining, which you could blame them. I can't get my three children to like what I fix for dinner all at the same time, let alone one million Israelites. You understand what I'm saying? All the moms in here go, mm-hmm, yeah. So they've seen God do amazing things, but they look over into this land that God wants them to go into. They send spies to check it out. And they come back and they wimp out of following what God is wanting them to do to give to them this promised land. But there were two spies who believed that it would be good. But Moses said this, the generation, the next generation will wander in the wilderness until all of that generation dies. And I will raise up a new generation who will follow me. So when Moses dies, he reminds the people before he dies that God did not choose you Did I skip something? I sure did. Sorry. As they're wandering in the wilderness. Oh man, I messed up. I had to go all the way back to the beginning. Sorry. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. So before Moses dies, sorry, actually a long time before Moses dies, God gives them 10 commandments. 
so that people would know how to live and have relationship with God, that they should have no other gods, they should not carve out any idols, that they should worship only him. And in the Ten Commandments, he tells them how to live among each other. They should not covet, they should not steal, they should not commit adultery. So God has given them guidelines. He even sets up a sacrificial system and establishes priests who would go and offer on behalf of the people a blood sacrifice as atonement for their sin at a designated time that God had given them. And then before Moses dies, he says, listen, God did not choose you because you were the greatest of all the people. In fact, you were the least of all the people. God chose you so that he would be your God and you would be his people. And through you, he would make his name known that Moses dies. And Joshua, who had been his right-hand man, becomes the leader of Israel. And Joshua is told this, Joshua, be strong and be courageous. Don't look to the left. Don't look to the right, but be careful to do everything according to what I've told you. Meditate on this law day and night, for then your way will be prosperous, and then you will have success. Joshua leads the Israelites at flood stage across the Jordan River that God dries up, not so they wouldn't get their chacos wet, okay? He dries up the water, and this is what he says. God did this so the nations would know that there is a God in Israel. Joshua marches the Israelites around this wall of Jericho seven times until the wall crumbles. And as long as the Israelites were following after God, every battle that they faced, God fought for them. And they believed in God. Before Joshua passed away, he told the people, he said, look, don't take these idols of the foreigners. Don't begin to worship them. And you know this verse, he said this in Joshua chapter 24, choose you this day who you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And after Joshua passed away, judges were instituted into the system. As long as Israelites had a judge, they would follow hard after God, obeying him. But when that judge died, like Deborah, then the Israelites would go away and they would start worshiping other gods and other idols. So God would raise up another judge like Gideon. And as long as Gideon was alive, they followed after God. But when Gideon died, they would go back to worshiping. And you see this pattern here. Uh, Through the judges for 300 years, the people following God, not following God, following God, not following God, following God. And there was a woman named Hannah who couldn't have children. She prayed, cried out to God, that God would give her a son, that if he did, she would give the son back to God. So God gives her a son, and she names him Samuel. And Samuel is given to Eli, the priest, and Samuel learns the ways of God. And Samuel comes to know the voice of God. And the people begin to cry out to Samuel, who became a priest and a judge and a prophet. We want a kingdom You see, comparison has been since the beginning of time. You thought it was just now that we look around and think, oh, I want that, I want that, I want to be like them. People forever have been doing this. And the people of Israel would look at other nations and they would say, we want to be like that nation over there. We want a king too to lead us. And God would say, tell the people they don't want a king. The people kept pursuing. And so finally God gave them what they wanted. Samuel anointed Saul to be king for 40 years. And Saul believed in God, followed God, but Saul was arrogant. 
and prideful, thought his way was above God's way. And so God removed his presence from Saul and told Samuel, I'm going to find a man who is after my own heart. Don't look at the outward appearance. I'm looking at the inner soul of a man. And Samuel goes to young kid, shepherd boy named David. You know the story. You've heard about David and Goliath, right? David is anointed as king. And one day the, the Israelite army is being taunted by the Philistines. And David shows up and he's quite well aware that this really has nothing to do with him. That this is about his God. And the people who are being taunted, who follow this God. So you know the story, takes out his little sling. It wasn't a nurse thing back then, okay? And he hits Goliath in the head with a rock and Goliath dies. And David goes and cuts off his head, not because David is the hero of the story. And he cuts off his head and he says this, I'm cutting off your head so the nations will know that there is a God in Israel. There's a bigger story than David. David was a man after God's heart, not because he didn't sin, but because when he did, he returned quickly to God. David wanted to build a temple for God. And God said, David, you're not going to be allowed to do this, but your son will. David has a son named Solomon. And Solomon grew up and David passed away. God came to Solomon one night in a dream. And this is going to sound a little bit like a genie in the bottle kind of thing, but it's not. This is God's word. God comes to Solomon and says, you can have anything you want. Solomon, what do you want? Solomon says, I want wisdom. God gives him wisdom. And because Solomon didn't ask for great wealth or something that would be just for him alone, God gives him great wealth. People seek out Solomon for his knowledge and for his wisdom. And he had great wealth and he built an incredible temple for God. And when he built it and they began to pray, the glory of God came and filled the temple and all of Israel fell down on their face, worshiping God. And God said this, if my people will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, what does he say? Then I will heal their land. But, but if you turn aside and forsake my commandments that I've set before you and you go and you serve other gods and you worship them, then I will pluck you up out of the land that I've given you and from this house and I will cast you out of my sight. Solomon built a magnificent temple for God. Solomon also built temples for all of his wives' gods, his foreign wives who worship foreign gods. He also built temples for them. And God said, Solomon, I'm going to remove a portion of your kingdom from you. Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam did not listen to the people who said the work is too hard for them. Instead, he increased their work and the kingdom is divided. And Rehoboam takes two tribes, Judah to the south. And Jeroboam, who had been Solomon's commanding armor guy, takes 10 tribes to the north. And the kingdom is divided. This is a point in scripture, where a lot of times, if you're like me, you begin to read it, like in First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and many of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all of these, and we begin to kind of go, okay, this is really boring. 
okay, this king, okay, he didn't follow God, okay, but his son, oh, his son was worse than that king, his father. And then we flip next chapter, oh, but he did more even worse things than his father did before him. And we begin to see this play out for years. Kings, leaders who did not follow God. Israel had no kings that follow God. Judah had just a few. Syria comes in and conquers Israel. Babylon comes in and conquers Judah, but not before God had warned them that this is going to happen. It's kind of like, you know, when your kids um, are younger and they just continually disobey you, they don't mind what it is that you're asking them to do. After the first service, I was out in the hallway and uh, Brent Ferguson, the dad, a cute little girl named Maisie, and, and they put her down and she's like a year and a half. And Brett would go like this to her and she would walk the other way. And he would go like this to her and she would take a step the other way. And you know how this goes, but it's so cute. How can you possibly punish that? Well, they outgrow their cuteness, don't they? And when you tell them to do something and they don't obey, you tell them again and they don't obey, and you tell them again and they don't obey, eventually you've established a consequence that if you don't obey me, here is what is going to happen. And it's not that you don't love them. It's that you want the best for them. And so God sent prophet after prophet, Hosea, which said, my, my people are continually bending from my way. Hosea would preach to them and say, I've told you not to go worship other gods. You're, you're like coming to me and offering sacrifices and then you're going to another God and offering sacrifice. It's like I've been your husband and yet you are committing adultery, whoring after other gods. And even though God would tell them the punishment, the consequences of what was going to come, Prophets also preach to them love and grace and mercy at the same time. So that Jeremiah, we quote this verse as if it's a very individualistic verse. And yes, it applies to our life, but it applies to much more than just us. Where Jeremiah says, I know the plans that I have for you. God's speaking to his people. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future And a hope is declared to them at this time. Isaiah declares to them that there's going to be a child that's going to be born. And to his kingdom, there will be no end. Ezekiel says this to them. I'm going to remove your heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put my spirit within you. Well, Assyria, Babylon, conquer. Persia comes in and takes over the whole thing. So that now Cyrus the Great is the leader of nations who are held captive. And yet Cyrus believes this, that the people should live in their own land and the people should worship their own God. And so God uses people who have found favor with him, like Zerubbabel, who returns back to build a temple with a few Israelites, like Nehemiah, who a few years later returns back to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, like Esther, who at just the right time is standing in the gap on behalf of the Israelites. So God is using his people even though they were held captive. And during that time, they come home to construct what had been destroyed by rebuilding the walls, by rebuilding the temple, by reestablishing what was. And then we see this. We see a period of, of 400 years silence 
or what some people might call the intertestament or intertestamental period, or between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have no prophetic voice from God. We can look at history and see that during this period of time, that Alexander the Great led people to take over Persia. And so now there's Greek rule. And now everything that had been written in the Old Testament is now translated to Greek. And then Roman rule comes and take over. But God isn't speaking to his people. It's quiet. Until one day, God comes to a virgin named Mary. He says that you're going to have a child. He will be God's son. Tells Mary and Joseph that you are to name him Jesus. And we know that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We know that he began his ministry when he was about 30 years old. And one day, John the Baptist, who had been sent before him to declare that the Messiah was coming, John is baptizing people and Jesus shows up and John declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus chooses disciples. And it says in Mark, he chose them to be with him so that he could send them out to preach. We see so many stories that take place of Jesus. I love this verse of the book in the book of John at the very end. It says that there are so many stories that if they were written down about Jesus, that he supposes there wouldn't be enough libraries in the world to contain all the books. But just a few that you know. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, he multiplies the fish and he multiplies the bread and he feeds everyone that is there. They, these people go, hmm, there's something different about this guy. We think maybe he's a prophet. And so they go to him and they say, You know, we would like to see a sign to know whether or not that maybe you're a prophet. And so um, why don't you give us a sign? Because Moses gave us a sign by giving us manna when we were in the wilderness. Jesus said, Moses didn't give you a sign. God gave you bread. I am the bread of life. And those who follow me will never hunger again. One day he makes a mud pie. That story would have been really great at day camp this week. He makes a bun pie and he spreads it on a blind guy's eyes. Tells him to go and wash and the blind man is healed. The Pharisees, the religious leaders are completely outraged about everything that Jesus is doing. And the blind guy looks at them and says, look, all I can tell you is this. Once I was blind, but now I see. God or Jesus had the power to take care of people's needs. Jesus had power over demons when he cast out demons from those who were possessed. Jesus had power over death when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus declared things that the Pharisees and religious leaders couldn't stand. He declared that I'm the way and I'm the truth and that I'm the life and nobody else comes to God except through me. He declared this, that he would destroy the temple and he would rebuild it. He declared this, that he would build a kingdom that would have no end. People believed that Jesus was the Messiah for a short time and they would cry out Hosanna, which actually means salvation is here like right now. And they believed Jesus Christ. But the religious leaders begin to stir up trouble. And you know how, how this goes down. They take Jesus, they give him an illegal trial. They went against their own laws and rules that they had established. And they tried him illegally And Jesus Christ, the most innocent man on the face of the earth, is hung on a cross. And he dies. And he's put in a tomb. 
And three days later, he rises again. Some women come to the tomb and they see that he's no longer there. And yet Jesus, over the next 40 days, appears to his disciples eight different times. And it says this in the Gospels, that he opened their eyes to understand the scriptures, that the Messiah must come, that he would die, and that he would rise again, and that forgiveness and repentance should be proclaimed throughout the entire world. And then the end would come. And Jesus commissions and sends out his disciples and his people. And he tells them to wait. So they go into Jerusalem and they're to wait for the spirit to come upon them. And they go there and they begin to pray, devoting themselves to prayer. And it says that the Holy Spirit fills the place like fire of tongues on their head. Get that picture in your mind. And they begin to proclaim the gospel and people begin to understand the story. And although there's people around during this time of Pentecost and this celebration who spoke different languages, people began to hear it in their own language. Peter begins to proclaim that there is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Thousands are added to the church. And the church is born. Because of persecution, people begin to scatter throughout the land, taking the gospel with them. They go to many places. One man who persecuted the believers, his name was Saul. And Jesus appears to Saul in a bright vision, the resurrected Christ. And it is so radical for him that the guy who had been persecuting Christians, dragging them out of their house and killing them, now becomes a Jesus follower. And he becomes a student of Jesus. They even bring Paul to a place called Antioch where many of the persecuted Christians had gone. And Paul begins to study there for a year. And at that place, the disciples become known for the first time as Christians. And Paul is sent out on many missionary journeys, three missionary journeys. And he begins to teach us and he begins to write letters to the church. And he begins to over make sure that they are people are knowing Christ in all the lands who have never heard. Not just the Jews and the Israelites, but other nations, Gentiles, people who have never heard of this way. And he begins to teach us things like this, like no longer is this sacrifice, but now you present your bodies as a sacrifice. That when you follow Jesus Christ, you're no longer this old creature. You are now a new creature. He teaches us that we've been crucified with Christ, but yet we still live. But it's not us. It's not our life story, but it's Jesus Christ who is living in us and through us. There was a disciple named John. Because of persecution, many of the disciples or all the disciples were martyred. John was sent to prison on an island. He was old an island called Patmos. Jesus comes to him and begins to reveal to him and tells him to write everything down that he sees. And Jesus said this to John, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. And if anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in with him. And John describes seeing these heavenly beings flying around, crying out to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they seize upon this throne. Someone sitting holding a book that is sealed. And the angel says, who's worthy to even open up this book? And it is declared the one 
who by his blood bought tribes and tongues and people from every nation. And John wrote this down in the book of Revelation, quoting Jesus Christ, I'm coming again. I am the beginning and I am the end. I am the alpha and I am the omega. Now, where do we fit in to this big picture story? Right here. You may look at your life at the moment in all the schedules and busyness, in all the struggles that you might be facing in your own marriage, your finances, your kids. And you think, how in the world does all of this fit into God's grand picture story? God is all about loving his creation. He's all about declaring his glory through you to all people. He's all about using the church as the vehicle. You see, the gospel came to you to save you, but not stop with you. The gospel came to you so that you could be sent out so that others could be saved. And it could be that because of your faith, because of your trust in God, in his resurrection, in his restoration power, in his redemption, in his salvation, in his healing, that whatever is playing out in your small story of your life, can God not work in such a way that it really has nothing to do with you, but everything about what he is doing and desires to do through you to declare his fame and his glory on the earth? We're going to sing a song that Christ is the cornerstone, that on everything our life is built on this, that we trust in nothing else. Look, this is one big love story. And it's not just a story and it's not just a true story. It is the story. There is no other one. And it may be that you're hearing this and you go, you know what? I want to be a part of that story. Now it makes sense to me. Then give your life to follow Jesus Christ.